0: If you have your Bibles, why don't you go ahead and open them up with me to the book of Hebrews. Of course, as we continue in our series in Hebrews, Christ, our anchor. Beginning to wrap up our series, we're coming to the end of the 12th chapter, verses 18 through 29 today. Uh, And then there's only one chapter left, chapter 13. So we're going to spend the next two weeks after today wrapping up the book. So we're getting towards the end here. We've been in this study for a while. So, again, that's Hebrews chapter 12, 18 to 29, that last section there of chapter 12. That's where we're headed. And as you're opening there, I want to start with a, a story. And it's a story that I don't actually like retelling because I don't really like reliving it that much. You'll understand why in a moment. But uh, some of you know that I proudly come from Lancaster County, Pennsylvania in my growing up years. Pennsylvania, if you're unaware, is our nation's greatest state. Um, It's called the Keystone State. It holds everything together. Um, And as a kid growing up in Lancaster County, if you've ever been there before in the summer, you'll understand why. You'll understand immediately. You'll notice two things that are unavoidable. The first, in summertime, is the unavoidable smell of manure. We call that country air. And The second is humidity, and I mean humidity, thick, sticky, just blah. So you put those two things together. It's smelly. It's sticky. And the thing you want to do when you're a kid is swim. That's the only thing you want to do. You want to go swimming. We lived to swim when we were kids. And so I share all that to just say I, I logged plenty of hours swimming, when I was growing up, I like to say I'm a self taught swimmer, which just really means I'm bad at it. Um, and I don't just say that, I, I really mean that. I'm just, the reality is, despite all those hours of swimming, I'm just not a good swimmer. So, with all that context, fast forward a few years. I'm right out of high school. So, we're talking about peak physical performance here. And I find myself, long story short, peer pressure, yada yada. I find myself in the middle of a lake, swimming with some buddies across it of a lake that I really had no business swimming across because I knew even before we started that I probably couldn't make it to the other side. And sure enough, get about halfway across, and I realize as I'm running out of steam, sure enough, I'm not going to make it. And it's the worst time to realize that because you're halfway. So there's no turning back. There's no going forward. It doesn't matter where you go. The reality is I'm not making it. But I didn't want to accept that reality. In the moment, what do you do? You just keep going. I had something left in the tank, so just whatever. Deny that reality. Don't believe it. Keep paddling. That's what I did. I just kept going, and I kept going, and I kept going, refusing to believe it until I kind of had to because something happened as I was running out of steam. A dolphin came up. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) I started to sink. And I couldn't even keep my head above water, barely. And, spoiler alert, I didn't drown. (laughs) Um, But I knew in that moment that I was drowning. I really realized it. I mean, I, I couldn't get around it. It was obvious. And so I turned over. I don't know why in the moment, I was still pretty calm. I turned over to my friend Frankie, who was swimming not too far away, and I said, Frankie, I'm drowning. And when I came out and said it, I really knew that's what was happening. And so I got a little bit more scared. And he said, what? And I said, I'm not going to make it. A little bit more desperation. And Frankie swam over. And he scooped me up. And he said these words that when he said them, I knew in that moment I was going to make it. He said, hold on to me. Hold on to me. And I did. I held on to his arm. One arm each at a time as one of them was holding me and the other one paddled. He would alternate and hold me with the other arm. And I'd hold on. And I didn't paddle. I didn't kick. I basically just laid on top of him. And I held on. And he paddled me to shore to safety to the other side. True story. Frankie saved my life. So thank you, Frankie. And thank you to whoever taught Frankie how to swim. Now, I I share this story because I think it pictures what our text is all about today. Like I did in the water, we have a tendency to deny the reality of what's going on. Sin and temptation threatens to drown us. And we like to believe that's not the case. We just like to put our heads down and keep on treading water and keep on paddling. And before you know it, we've let go of Jesus and we're just paddling on our own when really we're drowning. And so this text today says, wake up if that's you. You're drowning and you need help. And there's only one way to be saved. There's only one way to make it to the other side. And his name is Jesus. He's the great mediator. There is no other way to salvation. And our text today deals with that reality. Jesus says this to those of you who believe on him and those of you who don't. He says, hold on to me. Hold on to me. Let go of your pride, let go of your bitterness, let go of your shame, let go of your fear, let go of your momentary pleasures, let go of it all, and hold on to me. There's nothing better you can do than to hold on to Jesus. That's what our text is about, so that's what we're going to talk about today. Sound good? I want to pray and ask God's help for our time together Uh, And then we'll read the text. But first, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we do pause now before we explore your word together to thank you for it. We thank you for the Bible. Thank you for in it showing us what you are like, for not leaving us to guess, but revealing yourself to us so clearly. And that's our prayer this morning, that you would do just that, reveal yourself to us anew. Show us clearly who you are. Help us to understand you better. Help us to understand ourselves better, our situation in this broken world and in our battle with sin. And plant that truth in our hearts. Father, I I have nothing of value to share, but I know that you do. So would you plant your truth in our hearts in a way that shapes and molds us to be more like you. I pray also, if there is any here who do not know you, Draw them to you, Lord. Do that here. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Through the Spirit. Amen. All right, you got your Bibles? Hebrews 12. We're going to be looking at starting verse 18 here through the end of the chapter. This is God's Word. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness. And gloom, and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet, and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion the things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. You hear the gravity of the writer's words. He's not messing around here. The stakes are high. Let us not forget our God is a consuming fire. No, the the stakes are no less than heaven and hell. Eternal undoable separation from God and the grace that he offers will be your fate if you reject he who speaks in other words if you reject Jesus and his blood shed for you you will receive exactly what you deserve do not forget our God is a consuming fire And that brings us to the first point on our study sheet this morning. Mount Sinai shows us the terrifying reality of sin. You know, fire is not exactly the most inviting thing out there. Yeah, it can be useful. Um, We use it for heat, for light. We can even shape and fuse stuff with it. But there's a reason why we don't touch fire because it burns. And when we read our God is a consuming fire, we ought not to dampen the severity of those flames. This is not a a snuggly warm campfire. This is a consuming fire that burns and destroys. That is the terrifying reality of sin, that every single sinner must face this fire for every single sin. And here's the truly terrifying part of it all that there is nothing you can do to avoid it. This judgment is inescapable because God is inescapable. The great judge sees all and he knows all. There is no evidence, there's no need for evidence, there's no hearings or arguments. All is bare for all is known. Under the jurisdiction of a perfectly just judge, nothing, nothing is swept under the rug. Nothing is forgotten. All is accounted for. God sees everything you do. He knows everything you think. and He sees right into your very heart. And again, the terrifying part is there is nothing you can do about your sin. There is nothing you can do to hide it. There is nothing you can do to wash yourself clean. There is nothing you can do to make up for it. There is nothing you can do. And that is the terrifying reality of sin. And our text begins with an illustration of all this. A real encounter that sinners had one day with the Holy God. And it happened at Mount Sinai set the scene for you a little bit. God has descended on the mountain and he's about to give his law to his people. Remember, not long ago, he's just rescued them from Egypt. And now he is making them his people, giving them his law. And that's where we find ourselves here. But remember, we're talking about sinners here dealing with a holy God. And so we're going to start reading in verse 18. And I want us to look for, listen for the descriptors of what it was like for these sinners to meet a holy God. Verse 18. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet, and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them, for they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. Okay, so not exactly the most pleasant interaction, right? Did you catch the descriptors? We've got mention of a blazing fire Darkness, gloom, a tempest, the sound of a trumpet, and a voice whose words were so terrifying that those who heard it were literally begging it to stop. I mean, it sounds like a trailer for the next horror film. This summer, experience the voice that will make you beg it to stop. But the Israelites, unlike a movie, can just turn off the TV. They couldn't look away. They couldn't plug their ears. They could try all those things. This is their reality. Sinners facing a holy God. Moses himself, Moses with all his history with God, all they'd been through together, all Moses had seen, even Moses was terrified. Why? Why all this fear? This is God and his people, his own people, We're begging for him to stop speaking. Why all this fear? Well, the writer of Hebrews has already told us in chapter 10, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Why? Well, because we know him who says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. The Lord will judge his people. So the descriptors of this scene Pretty scary. They illustrate the reality of the infinite distance, the chasm separating a holy God and sinful man. And you would think that God meeting with his people and his people meeting with him, that this would be a pleasant interaction, that God giving graciously giving his law, would be met and received with, with rejoicing and praise. But that clearly isn't what's going on because even in the gracious act of giving his law, God demonstrates the impossibility of approaching him. Sin separates us from God because he is holy and he does not reside with sin. And there again is the terrifying reality of sin, that not just, not just that judgment is coming, but that there's nothing we can do. To bridge the chasm between us. As you can see on your study sheet, that's what R.C. Sproul calls the human dilemma. That's my dilemma. That's your dilemma. That's the human dilemma. That God is holy and we are not. That God is righteous and we are not. His standard is perfection. So, how can we ever expect to live with Him under that standard? that's why the law was not met with rejoicing and praise because it was understood immediately that we can't keep that. We can't perfectly keep the law, which means that still no one could approach God on the mountain. The law was not the solution to the human dilemma. Keeping the law could not bridge the chasm because no one could keep the law. The law did not make anyone holy, but instead exposed just how unholy we are it exposed just how deserving we are of punishment and how undeserving we are of getting close to god that's why paul calls the law the ministry of condemnation or even the ministry of death he says in romans 5:20 the law was brought in so that trespass so that sin might increase and moses who brought the law himself said You, God, have set our iniquities before us, our secret sins in the light of your presence. There's nowhere to hide. All our days pass away under your wrath. No, keeping the law is not the solution. The law only amplifies the terrifying reality of sin, that there is nothing we can do, no amount of praying, no amount of good deeds, no amount of anything that can ever make us right with God. And we can try anything we want. We're, we're pretty good at trying things and even believing, convincing ourselves that those things might work. But the reality is, there's nothing we can do about our sin problem. But there's good news. There's good news. Paul says in Romans 5, where he said that law was brought so that trespass might increase, so that sin might increase. What did he go on to say? That where sin increases, grace Increases all the more. Grace. Our God. Who is a consuming fire. Is also a God of magnificent grace. Grace is the solution to the human dilemma. And this grace has a name. His name is Jesus. The Christ. The great mediator. Paul says just as sin reigned in death. So also grace might reign. Grace might reign. Through righteousness. To bring not death but eternal, unending life. How? By doing good things, by praying more, by keeping the law? No. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, and through no other means. Yes, Moses was the one who the law came through, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ came, as in past tense. In other words, the solution to the human dilemma has already come in Jesus. And that's what the writer of Hebrews is trying to tell his readers, and he's trying to tell us today who have put our faith in Jesus, that we, we no longer find ourselves trembling in fear at the foot of Mount Sinai. We no longer find ourselves with this unapproachable and unconquerable gap between us and God. No, we've come to Mount Zion, where we're bid to draw near to come and to hold on. Verse 18, for you have not come to what may be touched. You've not come to Sinai. No, verse 22, you have come to Mount Zion. And let's find out what Mount Zion is all about. Let's read on. You've come to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. There's a lot in there to unpack. But once again, we find our author, as he's done again and again in Hebrews, drawing this amazing contrast between the old covenant and the new covenant. For those who live before Jesus and those who know him, in the new. And let me tell you, it's a lot better, as the author says again and again, to know Jesus. Notice the massive difference here between the experience of the Israelites at Sinai and those who are Christian who come to Mount Zion. At Sinai, there's necessary separation under pain of death. God literally forbid his own people not to come near him, he told them to stay away. But at Zion, There's not separation, but gathering, gathering. Verse 22 mentions a city, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Who abides in cities? What are cities filled with? People, gathering. There's there's this mention of a festal gathering of innumerable angels. So many angels, you can't count them all. It's a party of angels. You can only imagine what that looks like, but someday we will. And how do I know that? Because verse 23 It says, who else is there? The assembly of the firstborn, the church of Christ, those who are enrolled in heaven. They got their citizenship through who? God, the judge of all. The spirits of the righteous made perfect. Oh, there's no sinners here. There's those made perfect. And how so? Verse 24, ultimately, we come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. Into the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. We come to Jesus. This is no longer separation. This is the opposite of separation. This is communion. Enjoyed fellowship, a celebration, a party, peace, love, forever. And interestingly, notice that the author doesn't mention God as Father here a typical descriptor. He doesn't say, you've come to God the Father. No, he specifically says, you've come to God, verse 23, the judge of all. Why do you think he uses that descriptor here? I think he does this to demonstrate that God's standards at Zion are exactly the same as they were at Sinai. They haven't changed. He didn't suddenly lower his standards to say, you know what? 75... 60% righteousness, that'll be good enough to get in. No, his standard as the perfect judge of all remains perfect righteousness. So that means every sin must still be accounted for. So what hope is there for sinners to read Zion? Well, that's where the great mediator comes in. That's where we go back to Hebrews 4, to our great high priest who was tempted in every way as we are, Jesus when he walked on this earth, when he walked in this broken world, tempted to sin just like you and me in every single way that we were. But unlike us, he was able to resist, not just resist, but obey perfectly. He never once sinned in thought or deed. He fulfilled the law, keeping it perfectly. Jesus is perfectly righteous. And because of this, because he was spotless, He could be our perfect sacrifice, the final sacrifice for sin. And he was. He was crucified. He who knew no sin was crucified. And as Jesus hung on that cross, God, the judge of all, a consuming fire, poured out his wrath on Jesus for our sin. Paul says that he who knew no sin became sin so that we, those of us who believe on Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. There is the solution to the human dilemma, that God is holy and we are not, that he is righteous and we are not, that he who knew no sin became sin so that we, if we trust in him, might get his righteousness and therefore enter into the holy city and join that party of angels and all our fellow rescued sinners who are sinners no more but the spirits of those made perfect as we celebrate and worship with reverence and all our God who saves our God saves I love the way one commentator put it that in Zion, there's no human righteousness except that of Christ's, who is human. In Zion, there are many people, but there is only Christ's righteousness. So there's only one way in. The writer says also of Christ's blood in verse 24 that it, that it speaks. How can blood speak? He says specifically that it speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. He's already mentioned Abel in chapter 11, our author, and he's mentioned him as this faithful guy, faithful specifically because he was obedient in bringing sacrifice. But as faithful as and obedient as that sacrifice may be, it had limits. It was only temporary, and it was needed again and again. Jesus' blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel because unlike Abel's sacrifice, Jesus' blood satisfied God's wrath. Once and for all. It's the last sacrifice. Jesus' blood was able to do what Abel's blood was able to do, what Abel's blood is unable to do. That's a mouthful. Jesus' blood saves. Do you believe that? Because it's true. The blood of Jesus saves. The writer says that it speaks. The blood of Jesus speaks a loud and clear message. It says to those drowning in the river of sin, hold on to me. Hold on to me. I will save you. I will protect you. I will adopt you. I will bring you home. I will keep you. I will raise you up. I will strengthen you. I will heal you. I will cleanse you. I will love you and I will never, never let you go. Hold on to me. Hold on to me. That's the message of the blood of Christ. And if Christ has spoken in such a way through the shedding of his own blood, then we cannot refuse him. We cannot reject him. And to do so, has inescapable and eternal consequences. Look at verse 25. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape, talking about those at Sinai, if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. Let's read on. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. There's great judgment that is going to be coming, and this is the warning of our passage today and the warning of really the entire book of Hebrews, and that is this. God has spoken. The one true God has spoken to us in many times and in many ways, but in these last days, he has especially spoken to us Through his Son. His Son is the heir of all things, the creator of the world, the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. He has made purification for sins. He now sits at the right hand of the majesty on high. His name is more excellent than that of any angel. His name is more excellent than that of any other name. His name is Jesus. There is no one higher. There is no one greater than he. And if he speaks, we must listen. We must pay attention. No, do not reject Jesus Do not reject his offer of grace. Do not reject him who speaks. For how, how shall we neglect such a great salvation? If we do so, there is no escape. To say it simply, if you reject Jesus, if you reject Jesus, you will not escape God's wrath. The writer is presenting the gospel how it ought to be presented, not as something just to consider, something to think about later. He's presenting it as an ultimatum because it is an ultimatum. Believe on Jesus and you will be graciously sl- saved to glory, but reject him and you will not escape God's wrath. The stakes are no lower than heaven and hell. And that is why throughout this entire book, the writer has been so careful to warn again and again about these things because guess what? The stakes cannot be higher. And he's specific to warn for those who have put their faith in in Christ not to let go, keep holding on, endure in this race called life, don't let the short-term hindrances win. Don't sell out for now. Hold on. Hold your gaze on Christ. Don't drift away. Don't drift off course. Don't be like Esau. Remember the mention of Esau in last week's text. The guy who sold his whole inheritance in a moment for a bowl of soup. And when he was left with just an empty bowl and nothing else, yeah, yeah, he regretted it. But he had a chance to Repent. He didn't. See, Esau, he wanted all God's blessings, but he didn't want God. And that's the warning of our passage this morning is not don't reject a free ticket to heaven. That's not the warning because that's not what's offered. And that's not the warning. The warning is this. Don't reject him who speaks. Don't reject him. Don't reject Jesus. And if you want to accept Jesus, you must first repent. And that's something Esau didn't want to do. You must first repent. Admit to God that you're a sinner. Admit that you're drowning and you need help. And then here's the key part. Turn. Turn from that which your heart has set its affections on in this life, probably yourself and your own pleasure in whatever avenue you seek it. You turn from that and you follow Jesus with your thoughts, with your words, with your actions. You take the, the scepter of control of your life, the right to do whatever it is that you want to do, and you hand it to Jesus thus making him not just your savior from sin, but the Lord of your life. And Esau didn't want to do all that. That's costly. And the warning in this text is don't be like Esau. Don't do that. Don't reject Jesus. Repent and hold on to him. If we're like Esau, we should shake in our boots far more than the Israelites at Mount Sinai for our punishment will be far more severe and there will be no escape. But don't forget the great hope for those who do repent, those who do hold on to Jesus and thus obtain God's glorious grace. For those of us who have, this text says we've not come to a mountain that cannot be touched by fear of death. No, no. We've come to a mountain where our Savior bids us to draw near to come and to touch him in his wounds, the same wounds that purchased your forgiveness from sin. What a promise. And as God promises to remake his creation through a great shaking of heaven and earth, he promises this for those who believe on him that you are among those that cannot be shaken. If you hold on to Jesus, he will hold on to you forever. Period. You are eternally secure in the hands of Jesus. What a promise. Verse 28. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. As we prepare to close this morning, we must endeavor this, to keep the awful cost of sin close to, close to our hearts. And we do this because it helps us remember how grateful we should be that God made a way for us to be saved how grateful we should be for the mediator who bridged the gap that we could not bridge. God made a way for us to be saved. If we, if we really want to appreciate what we are saved to, we must first remember what we are saved from. And for those of us who have put our trust in Jesus as Savior and Lord, guess what? We need not fear the wrath of God. We need not shrink back in fear because guess what? Jesus' work at the cross is complete and final. It's the last sacrifice for sin. There is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. None. Let us be grateful. And let us serve God with our lives in reverence and all, and worship to him. Let us not neglect such a great salvation. But by his grace, let us hold to Jesus. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for Jesus, for the great mediator who does bridge the gap between a holy God and sinful man, a chasm that we could never hope to cross if it wasn't for He. Thank you for making a way for us to be saved. And how we long to join that party of angels and fellow rescued sinners in heaven. I pray now for those who don't know you, Lord, that you would convict their hearts of their sin and draw them to you, spurn their hearts to repentance, and help them to follow you. For those of us who do know you, encourage our hearts, remind us of that cost of sin and help us to follow you and hold on to you with everything we've got. We know we need your help for this, so we ask for it and pray in the name of Jesus and through the Spirit, amen.